Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and that means we're here for another episode of National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. I have just a couple of notes to share before we get started today. First, it happens to be United Nations World Oceans Day today. It's a simple effort to bring attention to the health of our oceans on planet Earth. For those of you who watch the TV show Sunday Morning on CBS each week, Toward the end of this past Sunday's show, they had a segment on the amount of heat and carbon dioxide the oceans have trapped over the past 50 years, and the fact that the oceans are starting to hit a tipping point where they can't manage the impacts of human-caused climate change. That'll be sort of a double whammy for planet Earth when the oceans start to acidify and warm. I recommend watching that segment. It was highly educational. On a happier note, today happens to be the 62nd wedding anniversary for my friends Sharon and Ordeen Anderson. Happy anniversary, you two. Many more to come. All right, now let's go ahead and get started. We've seen some globally significant events transpire over the past four months. Russia invaded Ukraine, and the NATO alliance, the European Union, and liberal democracies around the world responded with aggressive sanctions on Russia and significant aid for Ukraine. In the midst of this global security crisis, democratic elections continued. France saw a heated race for president between incumbent Emmanuel Macron and challenger Marine Le Pen. Northern Ireland had elections for their assembly, and for the first time, Sinn Féin took a majority of seats. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has received blistering attacks from the opposition over his handling of COVID-19 in the UK and the behavior of his staff during lockdown, all while he rallies support for Ukraine. And just yesterday, he survived a no-confidence vote in Parliament. Germany has made an abrupt about-face on defense policies as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And finally, Finland and Sweden submitted applications to officially join NATO, also because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's been a tumultuous period, to say the least. With us to discuss these events is Dr. Devashri Gupta. Dev Gupta is a professor of political science at Carleton College, where she has taught since 2006. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Government from Georgetown University, a Master's in International Relations from the University of Chicago, and a Doctorate in Government from Cornell University. Her research interests include the internal politics of nationalist and separatist movements, especially the relations between moderate and militant factions, as well as social movements and protest behavior more broadly. Her geographic area of specialty is Western Europe, with a particular focus on the politics of the United Kingdom and Ireland. Her current research projects include an analysis of strategic redirections in Northern Ireland's Republican movement and the conditions under which tactical change might contribute to the formation of splinter groups and intra-movement rivals. Dr. Dev Gupta, welcome back to National Security This Week. 
Thanks so much, John. It's a pleasure to be back. We had you on, uh, I think it was uh, October last year. Yes, Does that sound right? right? Yeah, that's We right. talked about the politics in the UK and, and uh, Northern Ireland. And One whatnot. of my favorite topics. It was, <laughs> yeah. a, it was a real treat just to spend an hour just talking about nothing but that. <laughs> well, we'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, let's let's go ahead and start with the elections, and let's start with France, if we could. Sure. Uh, can you frame for our listeners how important the election in France was for the EU, kind of for NATO, and, and perhaps for the world? Sure. Um, this was a really closely watched election that was understood to be high stakes in part because of Marine Le Pen, yeah. uh, who is one of the standard bearers for the far right in France, and which had its strongest national showing in its in this election. Um, I think one of the things to understand, or as, an important piece of context about France is how they run their presidential elections. So it's known as a, a two-round system. That's one of the ways that people uh, describe it. So you have a field of, of presidential hopefuls um, that's pretty broad, pretty eclectic with um, you know many more than just two candidates and two parties. So in the first round, we had 12 uh, parties and candidates represented, including parties of the center, parties of the center left and right, and parties of the more um, far right and far left. Um, but the general pattern is that, you know, if no one wins an outright majority in that first round, then you go to a runoff election where the two top candidates um, go head to head and one of them therefore gets 50 percent. By yes. majority, do you mean at least 50, 50 51 percent? 51 percent, yes. Okay. Right. So, um, you know, in, in in France, historically, this this system has meant that in that first round, people can cast ballots for a wide variety of candidates for a wide variety of reasons. And so some people vote in a way that um, we, we talk about it as sincere voting, right? They vote for the candidate who is actually really closely aligned to their sincere political preferences and what kinds of policies they want. It also makes it possible for people to vote as a as a protest move mm. because they know that there's a second round coming up. Right. And so <laughs> the two most likely, two most um, uh, feasible candidates will go head to head. And so they'll have another chance to vote. And in that round, people will vote, you know, more strategically, who's the best of these two people. And so in the general sort of way that these things work, we might imagine that the two candidates with the broadest appeal are the ones that survive to the second round. And in France, for many decades, that first round would get narrowed to candidates of the center left and candidates of the center right. And so the Socialist Party is the largest historical center-left party, and then its counterpart um, on, on the, on the center-right. Um, but this pattern is really destabilized over time, and voters have turned to um, newer parties and parties of the far right, including Le Pen's national rally, um, and they've really benefited from this. So in this particular election, people were watching not just how Le Pen would do, but also how a challenger to her flank, someone who's even more extreme than her, would do. And that's Eric Zamora, whose party um, uh, had garnered some attention because of surging support, uh, high-profile defection of Le Pen's niece uh, to to his um, ranks, uh, and, and also because he is more hardline than even Le Pen is. And Marine Le Pen is not considered particularly centrist in any way. <laughs> no. Um, and so there was a lot lot of, of, of um, interest in the dynamics of this race and whether having two um, uh, uh, far-right politicians would split that vote, creating an opening for the moderate right to kind of sneak through. That didn't happen. And that just simply underscores the strength of the far-right vote at this moment. And so for people watching that election who are concerned about the implications for democracy, the commitment of France to 
the European Union, to NATO, to uh, liberal democracy, to multilateral approaches to international relations. This was a really consequential um, uh, election. Uh, And and, and I would say um, it's, it's a... It's a sobering election in many ways, even though Macron wins and Marine Le Pen doesn't, um, because, uh, you know, it's a it's a, an election where the gap between uh, Macron and Le Pen, who went head to head in 2017, narrows. And so that's something that people should be watching and taking seriously. Uh, and I've heard people say it's only a matter of time before, you know, uh, Marine Le Pen or, or her successor, whoever that might be, is going to win one of these things and sort of end up in that seat. So for for our listeners, can you sort of describe the differences between those two parties that Macron and, and Le Pen uh, respectively represent? I mean, kind of what do those parties stand for in France? Sure. So Macron is a centrist. Uh, he um, His policies, uh, he, he used to be um, a part of the socialist policy, has moved a little bit more to the right. But uh, Macron is really as centrist a politician as you might possibly imagine at this point. Um, and so, you know, his, um, his policies have really um, uh, uh, been aligned with relatively moderate um, reforms, uh, specifically um, uh, changes to try and, in some ways, um, reform the French economy, uh, and also uh, to use economic policies as tools to try and move France in particular directions. And I'm thinking specifically about environmental policy in this particular instance. Um, Some of your listeners might um, recognize or remember that uh, there was a period of extreme protest in France sort of touched off at the end of 2018, lasting many months, um, the so-called yellow vest protesters. And Mm -hmm. they were really protesting, at least it started with um, uh, some some, uh, fuel hikes, the price of, of, of fuel increased. And this was an attempt by Macron's government to use economic policy levers to try and um, move towards uh, a greener kind of an economy. Mm -hmm. But of course, these reforms, these price hikes hit people in France in different ways, depending on their existing sort of socioeconomic position, but also it opened up a rural urban divide. Mm. You know, in, in, in rural areas, you don't have uh, public transportation as an option. Uh, you are much more reliant on the car. I mean, this is familiar in the U.S. as well. And, and you so, have to drive further distances, so exactly. you're going to use more fuel. Exactly. So uh, it, it opened up a, a, an interesting kind of urban-rural rift. It wasn't just an urban-rural rift, but that, in addition to other um, policies, uh, tax reforms and, and um, efforts by the Macron government, was really seen as um, penalizing the everyday working-class French person and favoring a more urban, elite, economically um, stratified kind of uh, a, a population. Uh, Marine Le Pen is interesting because her um, stances have have. Um, I guess the big story with Marine Le Pen is that her her success has been in part a, a kind of mainstreaming of the far right. So her party is far right, uh, based on a number of different indicators. She has pretty strong. Um, positions on things like immigration and and sort of limiting immigration. Um, uh, she advocates for relatively strong measures that um, that that limit, say, wearing of headscarves in public areas or in um, in certain roles. And so that is seen as being an anti-Islamic kind of a, a stance. Um, you know, there are um, you know certain kinds of ways in which she softened that that 
that language, the stance of her party, um, to make it more about the economic uh, issues facing um, working people. So trying to bring a little bit more of an economic populism element into it that is not quite so distinctly far right, but actually plays well with people who might vote for left parties as well. Um, so with Eric Zemmour and his party appearing, which is a little bit less of a uh, an economic populist party and much more about the kind of cultural politics of the far right, it seemed like um, there was being a, a distinction made between the the more mainstreaming far right of the of, of Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour. However, once you get to that second round of the presidential election, Eric Zemmour loses, he throws his full support behind Marine Le Pen, and it becomes clear that you know, the softening, this mainstreaming is really just a surface level kind of a phenomenon. So Marine Le Pen's party, uh, could you frame them as uh, nationalistic, uh, populist, uh, sort of xenophobic to a certain extent? Oh, definitely xenophobic, and, not and, even to a certain extent. <laughs> and, and if she were to win or her successor were to win in future elections, are we likely to see France trying to pull out of the EU, sort of like the Brits did and with Brexit? Yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily predict that. Um, you know, the, the UK has historically been a lot more Eurosceptic. Sure. And because of their geography and because they're not tied into the Eurozone and because they're not tied into the Schengen free movement area, it in principle is a little bit easier to extract them because they are not as involved in all of these other institutions and rules. France is, right? It's part yeah. of the Eurozone. It's part of Schengen. Um, so I think it would be a little bit trickier to extract them. That doesn't mean that um, a Eurosceptic like Marine Le Pen or her successor wouldn't want to try. And Britain's given them a blueprint now, sure. right? So now we see that it's possible and um, and and maybe some of the ways in which they could do it. Um, I think that, you know, certainly there would be interest in trying to push back on some of the ways in which Brussels um, limits national sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the, the ways in which Marine Le Pen and people like Nigel Farage in the UK, people like Viktor Orban, who I think we're going to be talking about later, yep, yep. Um, they really see um, themselves as champions of national sovereignty, right? And so thinking about, um, you know, what is good for France doesn't necessarily mean that you um, give up ground to the European Union. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. It'll be interesting. We'll see what Macron has his work cut out for him yeah, that's <laughs> as true. a centrist. I mean, I do, I do think one, one or two other observations that, uh, that I think why we should care about the French case is that it's part of this continuing populist surge in elections mm -hmm. around the world. Um, you know, the, uh, we've seen it in the U.S. with Trump's election and then also with successive politicians who emulate Trump's playbook. Uh, but they're also populist on the left. It's not just a, uh, right. a right-wing phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and in Europe, much of the populism in the past three decades has been from the right wing. Um, uh, you know, we see right wing populist politicians who have won elections in, in, at the European level, at the, at the executive level, at the legislative level in places like UK, Sweden, Denmark, France, Italy, Austria, Hungary, Greece, and more. And that's a pretty wide selection of countries, pretty old and pretty stable democracies, younger democracies, richer countries, poorer countries. And and in the um, and, and so what I think is sort of interesting about the French election is that um, 
you have of the top three candidates who came atop the list in the first round, you have uh, Macron, the centrist, you have a right wing populist, that's Le Pen, and then you have a left wing populist who comes in third, and that's uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who came in third with 22% of the vote, just two points behind Le Pen. And so, you know, populism is, is a force that we should absolutely name and grapple with. Um, But what's interesting to me about the way that the dynamics of the presidential election have unfolded is that right now there's a lot of economic anxiety in France elsewhere. And and this is following on, you know, a couple of, of, um, you know, a period, number of months of really high profile public protests that really start with this economic anxiety. but also to include demands for public services and anger over tax cuts that were perceived to benefit the richest people in society. These are issues that it should be easy for politicians of the left to convert into votes, right? This is economic anxiety and inequality are the issues that the left historically claim as theirs. But this didn't happen, right? Not not unproblematically. And so many of the yellow vest protesters in the run-up to the election actually signaled their support for Le Pen or even the more far-right candidate, Zamor. And it suggests to me that the, the populism is sort of the common denominator. It's the thing that's the constant here that's driving a lot of this, this dynamic. It's the anti-establishment candidate who talks about politics not being business as usual, who promises to shake things up and cut through the governing morass to serve the regular people. And that sounds really democratic in a lot of ways, but in practice, populists tend to prefer limiting deliberation, uh, limiting the number of voices who weigh in on policy and policymaking processes, and most importantly, including limiting the voices that argue for minority perspectives Mm. um, and minority populations. And so there's a a preference for action in the name of the people, Um, but in short order, that can lead to a kind of tyranny of the majority and a weakening of institutional norms and institutional rules that are intended to keep political power in check. Right? Yeah. Checks and balances are um, annoying if if they slow you down <laughs> from what you want, but it assumes that at some point you or your p- preferred politician will not be in power because that's the sort of bargain of democracy. Sometimes you lose. And those are the rules that actually protect us as well. And yeah. so that's one of the things that I... I'm thinking about when I look at France. Yeah, and I can tell you, in the 21 years that I served as an intelligence officer in the Navy, uh, all the intel analysts out there in the U.S. intelligence community, whenever a a nation around the world would move towards a populist uh, political leader uh, or start advocating on behalf of sort of nationalist uh, rhetoric, we always started watching those countries much more intently because there was a destabilization mm-hmm. of sort of the democratic process that was taking place when those movements started to gain traction. Yeah. You had to watch those countries because you knew there was trouble brewing. Yep, absolutely. So you're known at Carleton for your course on the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, my introduction included your studies of the IRA and the peace deal that ended, maybe ended, <laughs> <laughs> the conflict in Northern Ireland. What does it mean that the political party Sinn Féin won the most seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly elections. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about you know what Sinn Fein is and why it matters so much that they might be taking the political lead in Northern Ireland. Sure. Okay. So a little bit of context. So Northern Ireland um, uh, is part of the UK, as we know, but. The UK has what we call a devolved form of government. So there's a parliament in London. That's the beautiful building with West uh, with Big Ben at the end that everyone sort of recognizes, and that is still the supreme legislative body. But 
that parliament has chosen to grant certain self-governing powers to three regions, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, all of which now have their own parliaments and have had since 1997, with limited power to make laws. So Northern Ireland, the assembly is the regional parliament, and it can legislate over things like housing, education, healthcare policy, agricultural policy, etc. There are certain things that are considered reserved so that they're politically fraught, and so the parliament in Northern Ireland is not really supposed to deal with them. Um, Policing and security issues being one of them, (laughs) given the history in Northern Ireland. But one important piece of context to understand Sinn Féin's um, uh, election. And and who is Sinn Féin? Sorry, Sinn Féin is one of the four largest political parties in Northern Ireland. And uh, the, the key facts to know about them is that um, one is that they're the political arm of uh, the Irish Republican Army or the um, Irish Republican Army is officially disbanded, but they were for all of their history really uh, linked to the IRA. Um, they are a pro-unification with Ireland party. That is one of the most important pieces of their political platform. Uh, and the people who support um, Sinn Féin tend to be um, uh, they, they call themselves nationalists. They want unification with Ireland, which they see as their their rightful um, uh, national home. And it tends to be a um, mostly, although not fully, Catholic population. And Northern Ireland has a historic divide between Catholics who generally want to be united with Ireland and Protestants who generally want to be um, united with Great Britain. Uh, and so the the one sort of slightly more technical piece to understanding Northern Ireland is in 1997, there was a peace agreement called the Belfast Agreement, which was signed to bring an end to 30 years of conflict, which we refer to as the Troubles. And one key element of this agreement was how this Northern Ireland assembly would be structured so that the two sides, the nationalist and unionist, Catholic and Protestant sides, would work together. Historically, um, the uh, there was a parliament in Northern Ireland that um, was a sort of holdover from, um, you know, when all of Ireland was part of, of the UK. And, you know, it, I don't know how much detail you want. Be- but before Irish independence, bef- anyway. Yes. And so... Um, <laughs> You know, so there was, and 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 the and, and the British government sort of largely left matters of Northern Ireland's governance in the hands of this local parliament um, through you know since 1921 to the 1960s when the troubles really get going, and so in this period with this parliament, the Protestants who were a numerically larger population um, had complete dominance, and so um, the the Catholic representing parties would never be able to stop anything from happening. So they were kind of an inert force. And so one of the worries was how do you actually get this parliament in Northern Ireland post-peace process to work together? So one of the ways in which the the peace agreement um, structured this is that uh, the two largest political parties, one representing the unionists and one representing the nationalists, would have to work together to mm. govern. Uh, and they, and there would be no other option. In order to form an executive, you have to work together. And if one party refuses for whatever reason, the executive can't function. So it's pretty high stakes. And, and there have been instances in the past where the two main parties have not been able to work together. So in Northern Ireland, this provision and the natural division between the unionist and, and, and uh, national sides means that the major electoral competition is intra-community. So 
what matters more is who the Catholics are voting for, Sinn Féin or their rival, the SDLP, and who the unionists are voting for, the largest political party on that side, the Democratic Unionist Party, or their rival, the Ulster Unionist Party, because almost no one really crosses that divide, right? You don't really find examples of many Catholics deciding that they're going to vote for the Protestant parties or vice versa. So um, when the peace agreement was signed, one long-term story in Northern Ireland that helps provide context for why this election is so interesting and consequential is that there's been a gradual erosion of the moderate parties on either side in each community and erosion in favor of the more militant political parties. So after the peace agreement was signed, the largest nationalist party was the SDLP. Moderate, constitutional, has always issued violence, you know, um, involved in negotiations with the British government throughout the troubles to kind of bring an end to it. And the Ulster Unionist Party, their counterpart. Over time, they've lost power. They've lost votes. They've lost seats. And the net winners have been Sinn Féin, the more militant nationalists, and the DUP, the more militant unionists. And this has made it hard to work together in the executive because we imagine the moderates can more easily come to a bargain with each other than the militants on either side, in part because, um, you know, uh, their voters tend to reward militancy. So it doesn't really work as well for them if they have to um, bargain. So Sinn Féin became the dominant party on the nationalist side in 2003. So that's not a new story. What's interesting about this is that they're no longer the second largest party, they're the largest party. Right. <laughs> um, and so one of the ways in which um, we might think about this is what does this potentially tell us about their uh, about the underlying demographics of Northern Ireland? And this is a fraught issue, right? Because one of the sort of assumptions is a main reason why Northern Ireland is still in the UK and not hurtling towards reunification with Ireland is that there are still more Protestants in Northern Ireland than there are Catholics. Well, we don't actually know what the current numbers are until the 2021 census releases the data. Okay. But the trends over time have been really clear. That gap has been narrowing over time, in part because the Catholic population has a higher birth rate. Sure. Um, so, you know, that's a possibility. But I was looking at some analysis out of, of the London School of Economics that suggests that the unionist block of parties still has a net voter advantage, but it is paper thin. So the numbers I saw was something like a net advantage of 6,400 votes, <laughs> right? So paper thin. Um, so slim and eroding, but still numerical advantage. Um, so there is a, an interesting sort of dynamic here about what might be happening uh, in terms of people's shifting preferences and the ways in which... Um, Brexit in particular has kind of fragmented what's been going on on the unionist side, which makes it possible for Sinn Féin to kind of just, just leap over them, just leapfrog over them. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that, you know, I want to sort of stress two things that seem contradictory. One is that this is a pretty important and significant election. And Sinn Féin becoming the largest political party in Northern Ireland is huge. Right. They did that without increasing their, their share of seats. So in 2017, they won... Um, something like, uh, what's the number? I have it here somewhere. Um, they had 27 seats out of 90. And in 2022, they have 27 seats out of 90. So they didn't actually increase the number of seats at all. Um, the unionists have decreased the number of seats. And the net winner 
in the uh, sort of the net biggest gain was a party called the Alliance Party, which is a non-sectarian centrist party. So there's some interesting dynamics we can talk about and how oh. they've benefited from <laughs> the brouhaha over Brexit. We'll have to see how that uh, shakes up over the next uh, couple of years, I guess. Yes. So we, you mentioned the Brexit vote uh, pulling the United Kingdom out of the European Union. Uh, there had been a, you know, the Scots had held a, an independence vote, mm-hmm. uh, I think not, not long after that, and they they voted to remain in the United Kingdom. Uh, Sinn Féin becoming a more powerful political party in Northern Ireland. Do you see if they, if they gain enough power, uh, will they force a referendum vote in Northern Ireland to unify with, uh, or at least pull out of the United Kingdom, maybe unifying with Northern Ireland? It's a really interesting question. Um, one correction, the Scottish referendum was in 2014. So 2014, this was before, before, before Brexit. Okay. Um, I actually think uh, it's a fair question that if the referendum in Scotland had happened after Brexit, if we would have already be looking at the I dissolution think, I, of I the UK. I think so. <laughs> I think so, too. Um, yeah. You know, Given how much more strongly Scotland came out on the Remain side for, for Brexit, um, I think one of the, the discussions in 2014 um, was we just don't know uh, if pulling out of the UK would allow Scotland to enter the EU. And it was always clear that Scotland would want to enter the EU as an independent country. Well, you know, the, the it was unknown whether that would happen. There were reasons to think that it would be hard to do because Spain, for one, would not want to set a precedent of a breakaway region right. joining the EU. <laughs> so one of the arguments that was made in 2014 was um, better to stay in the UK where we're in the EU than leave the UK and then not be able to get in the EU. Well, right. when the UK leaves the EU, then that argument becomes absolutely powerless. So right. anyway, I think this is a really um, interesting election to think about that. Um, but I do think it is important to recognize that the result that we're talking about with Sinn Féin becoming this largest party is still the result of relatively small shifts, right, in the number of seats. So it's important, but it's not earth shattering in some ways. Um, They didn't, so Sinn Féin didn't increase their share of seats. They did increase their share of the overall vote, but that's just by 1%. So we're not talking about huge things. Um, it's, it's, it's the story in the unionist side that I think is interesting. And they start to splinter a little bit because there are real, I think, anxieties on the unionist side about how Brexit has really changed the landscape for Northern Ireland. Um, you might remember that um, one of the things that we talked about when I was last here is the way in which Brexit um, sort of brings to the surface a pretty agonized conversation about land borders and where the custom borders between the UK and the EU should be, Mm -hmm. right? So that you have to have some place to inspect goods coming out and into the EU. And the two main choices that were offered were um, uh, both controversial. So you put the customs border where the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland um, is, that becomes a relatively hardened border with checkpoints and and security, and that made the nationalists very upset because then it really reinforces that Northern Ireland is separate from the rest of Ireland. They don't want that to be the case. The alternative of putting the customs border in the Irish Sea so that you have checkpoints and checks at the Northern Ireland Welsh and Scottish ports made the Unionists mad because then that really reinforces the idea that Northern Ireland is not really part of the rest of the UK. Well, the Unionists lost that particular 
battle. And so the customs border is in the North, in the, in the Irish Sea. And this has been a sore spot for the Unionists. There have been protests. This has been an issue. Um, and so what this means now is the Unionist, the largest Unionist party, the militants, the DUP, have to agree to form an executive with Sinn Féin. And they have so far signaled that they would be unwilling to do so until um, the Brexit protocol is revisited. Okay. So, um, you know, and, and, and this kind of impasse has happened before, not with Brexit, but um, in the past, this has led to the, the executive kind of being inert, um, not being able to function. And that has actually meant that some of the governance that normally would happen at the Northern Ireland regional level gets shifted back to the 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 British level in, in Westminster, and actually no one wants that to happen. So this is going to be an interesting game of chicken to see how <laughs> far the DUP is willing to go. But this issue of, uh, of, of independence is such an interesting one. It's certainly the fear that unionists have at this particular moment, I would say. Yeah. I personally don't think it's imminent. Um, under the terms of the peace agreement, a referendum can be called if there's reason to believe a majority of the population in Northern Ireland wish for reunification. That's a call that the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland makes. That's a cabinet level official in the British government. And I don't think we're there yet. So I was looking at some some polling data just from December. So not, you know, absolutely current, but not that long ago. And, and this was polling that was done on both sides of the border because the wishes of the Republic are not irrelevant to this discussion sure. either. Sure. Um, and Sinn Féin, by the way, is a pretty major political party in, in the Republic of Ireland as well. They're the only political party that is an all-Ireland party. They have, they run candidates on both sides of that border. And so, um, you know, for Sinn Féin, Reunification is important for the principle alone, but they're also wanting reunification to happen in such a way that they can set themselves up to be an obvious player in a new united Ireland, right? So the terms of that and the conditions under which that happens is also going to be important for them. So in the Republic, in this December polling data, 62% favor unification, Um, but don't see it happening right away. And so the poll, the Irish Times poll, asked about a likely time frame. And most popular, the most popular answer was sometime in the next decade. Okay. Okay. So then there's a similar poll in the north. Uh, A majority think that there should be a border poll at some point in the future, which is pretty imprecise. Um, And if pressed, two thirds of those surveyed thought that if it were held in about a decade, it would likely pass. Okay. But... um, if it were held today, there would be no chance of it passing. And I think there are lots of reasons for that. Even people who self-identify as Irish and nationalist might have some um, questions about how it would work to transition from the British National Health Service to the Irish Health Service. The NHS is um, seen to be, you know, better equipped and better resourced by some, not all. Um, Unemployment benefits are more generous in the UK. If we're heading into a global recession, sorry, I said the R word, but (laughs) if we're heading into sort of a prolonged period of economic unrest, that's not a small consideration. Um, But I also think that longer term, especially among young people, and possibly young people of both Catholic and Protestant communities, there's a sense that maybe life under the EU might be better than life in a post-Brexit Britain. Oh, right. Because of the economic opportunities, the the travel, the, um, you know, the EU is a much larger tra- trading block um, than Britain by itself. Um, you know, so the kinds of trade deals it can strike, the kind of negotiating power it has is 
is really different. But COVID makes it complicated because we don't really know what a post-Brexit Britain really looks like. Um, you know, That's true. <laughs> and we, can, we can't really discern a yeah. signal because yeah. there's so much COVID noise. Right, right. right. Um, so I think there's a sense of a ticking clock. It's going to put some pressure on Sinn Féin uh, to soften the ground and then for the unionists to hold that ground. And so what I'm interested in thinking about and watching for is how paramilitaries on both sides, and, and they haven't gone away despite the peace um, process, how they might see this moment as either an opportunity or a threat, right? and how they might um, uh, justify stepped-up activity um, in, in, in those terms. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll just say is, as for Scotland, um, I think... Uh, the issue of a referendum in Scotland, Scotland is always on the table, especially when the Scottish National Party does well um, in elections. Um, but the most recent polling that I saw suggested that Northern Ireland is more invested in Scotland having a referendum than people in Scotland, um, 66% to 56%. So there's something interesting there. Um, you know, the, the the thing I would just sort of underscore, though, is that it's possible to look at Northern Ireland's elections as a bellwether for Scotland, as a bellwether for this question about constitutional status, about whether the UK should basically, you know, break up the band and sort of go in different directions. But I think elections also have to do with other really mundane questions. And it's hard to separate some of those things out sometimes. So Sinn Féin's election rhetoric, and everyone knows that Sinn Féin wants unification with Ireland. This is known. It is not a question. They right. have never backed away from it. <laughs> right? It is part of their core identity. But in this election, they also put a lot of economic issues front and center, like really basic bread and butter, you know, how do you manage in the home that you have, not the home that you want, um, kind of, 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 of way. And they kind of downplayed some of the big constitutional issues. So again, Sinn Féin cl clearly cares about it. But it also wants to demonstrate that it's not a one-issue party, okay. right? Um, that it, it wants to demonstrate that it's a competent governing force that cares about the things that people care about when it comes to, you know, trash pickup and, and, and making the schools work and making sure that, you know, there are functional public services and all of these things. Um, you know, they don't want to tie themselves to the one issue that becomes irrelevant if they manage to achieve independence. If they're only about independence and then you get independence, then what else do you have to offer the voters? Yeah. Well, there's there's going to be a lot to watch in Northern Ireland and even Scotland and how how the United Kingdom functions once we do kind of finish with COVID and they have to stand on their own. Yep. I'm yeah. also watching Wales because there have been some pro-independence Welsh um, politicians oh. who have been making some noise and no one really takes <laughs> Welsh independence all that seriously when you've got Northern Ireland and Scotland to talk about. But we shouldn't forget about Wales, even yeah. though they're smaller and much more... Um, tied to the UK, to the to, to England and to, to British politics. But, um, you know, we talk about a rise of populism in the world. We should also talk about the rise of nationalism in the world. We're living in an intensely we are. nationalistic moment. Yeah. And when we talk about nationalism, we're often thinking about its most um, virulent and violent and exclusionary forms. Well, you know, in Scotland and Wales, at least, that that nationalism hasn't, you know, historically taken predominantly violent forms. It hasn't taken predominantly xenophobic sort of forms, not in the way that we might see in, in well, we'll talk about Ukraine and Hungary and some of these other places in just a little bit. We'll have a, a little a little short in time to do that. We yep. have about 20 minutes left. Um, so, but, but, it's, but nationalism is still a force there, too. Yeah, 
Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Devrashi Gupta from Carleton College, and we're discussing recent elections in Western Europe and implications for European security. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the crisis in Ukraine, if we could. As someone who studied European security issues, could you have predicted how quickly the EU and NATO would come together to enact sanctions and, and really robust sanctions against Russia and Belarus over Russia's invasion of Ukraine? It was a surprise to me, I will be honest, um, in, in part because Russia's engaged in brinksmanship in Ukraine before and um, over Crimea and then in Georgia as well. And yeah. we, we haven't seen the kind of unified and, and clear response. Um, you know, so I think a, a number of people were surprised. I think Putin was surprised. Right. Uh, <laughs> He's probably the most surprised. <laughs> right. I mean, um, you know, it's. If the past is prologue, we would not have predicted that the Western democracies would come together in this way, um, yeah. in this particular instance, especially since a lot of those players have, you know, pretty big fractious domestic issues that sort of pull them away yeah. from these sorts of issues, uh, these, 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 this, this particular um, uh, crisis. And I, and I suspect Putin assumed that as well. Well, Boris Johnson, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, they, they both <laughs> had lots of things on their plates. Absolutely. And they have been some of the champions of, uh, of support. So for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? Newton's, Newton's third law. So Putin orders the invasion of Ukraine. The EU and, and the NATO nations suddenly find their footing, and the alliance is rapidly strengthened against a common uh, foe. Even Germany. Even Germany alters their thinking about German national defense priorities. Germany had been woefully inadequate in their spending on their own national defense for quite some time. Uh, what can you tell us about Germany's political situation before the Russian invasion? We, we all heard about Nord Stream 2 and why it was such a bad idea that it's, it's an economic and an energy issue. But it was also a security issue for Germany because mm -hmm. economic security is national security. And Germany and Russia have been uh, profoundly linked for, you know, economically and, and even politically for some time now uh, on Angela Merkel tried her best to have a good working relationship mm -hmm. with Vladimir Putin because of these energy issues. How, how much of an about face has it been for Germany uh, turning their backs really on Russia as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, it, it's in so many ways a pretty big change, right? Um, you know, it, it's changed the, the, the Germany has changed its policy on never sending weapons to conflict zones, right? right? That's a, that's a very, very big shift. Yeah. And um, it, it really sort of signals a kind of a transformation to of, of their stance of like not wanting to contribute, you know, to, um, to a, a more militant response when like negotiations and talk and engagement through trade are, are ways that they have preferred to, um, to wield their sort of foreign policy yeah. might. Um, and, and this kind of change through trade, right? This uh, uh, this 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 policy of, of engagement rather than balancing um, has been something that has been such a deeply rooted feature um, of of German politics in this post-war period. It, it's and they've done well with sort of working through um, and banking on um, you know global engagement, globalization, trade, but all of that is built upon an assumption that you have a rules-based order. Right. <laughs> and so what they're confronting now is this, is this very tangible example that you've got some bad actors who do not play by those rules. Right. And playing by the rules when your opponents are not playing by the rules is a sucker's game. Right. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. So we know that you know Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, and Germany's Chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, se seem to be providing pretty strong 
European leadership in handling this Russia-Ukraine situation. What challenges do they have across the rest of Europe for both the EU component and the NATO component with regard to Turkey, as it's now supposed to be called, (laughs) and Hungary, uh, both of which have proven, I'll say, complicated for the alliance and, and for the efforts to oppose Russia? Yeah, so let's start with with uh, Hungary. Viktor Orban in Hungary is a complicated politician. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he's a populist. That's that's the sort of first and most important thing that I would say about him. And what that means, and, and populism uh, is this is this um, sort of very malleable, flexible kind of of, of ideological strategy pairs with left-wing politics, it pairs with right-wing politics, but the main kind of, of, of way of thinking about the world in populist terms is that there's an us and a them, and it's usually cast in terms of a corrupt elite versus a virtuous people, and the populist leader is the champion of the virtuous people in the face of this corrupt elite, and politics is seen as kind of the zero-sum game in kind of and cast in very moralistic terms, a good versus evil kind of a, 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 a guise. So even before this um, crisis, Orban wields populism really effectively. And for him, the main other, the main evil elite is Brussels, right? Mm. It's the European Union. But more broadly than that, the EU sort of stands in for the liberal West. And so he has this rhetoric that's worked really well for him in domestic politics, that he is sort of championing... Um, uh, the sort of forces that want to challenge this liberal order. And so that that kind of pattern meets the 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 alliance against Putin, which is framed as the stand of the liberal West against liberal autocrats like Putin, like Putin specifically, but also sure. he becomes a stand-in for, um, you know, illiberalism. So then you've got Viktor Orban, who on one hand is a member of the EU, um, you know, he has to comply with EU sanctions, um, and, and he has, that's the thing that sort of com- complex about him and perplexing about him is that, um, you know, Germany, in some sense, has voiced more doubts about sanctions compared to Hungary, right? (laughs) And Hungary has complied, right? Um, But at the same time, he is explicitly someone who admires illiberalism is skeptical of the West, and its model of democracy. Um, So the, the rhetoric and the reality are kind of interestingly divergent. And 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 Hungary, um, is tied to the EU economically. So there are some real penalties for going too far down the road of bucking the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, the State Department said something like 89% of, of Hungary's foreign direct investment comes from the EU, and Germany is the largest um, uh, investor. China is a pretty minor investor, and Russia is actually not even a minor investor. So there's a, an interesting kind of um, reality that, that Viktor Orban has to deal with. Um, Ukraine and Hungary have strained relations before the war as right. well. Um, and so, you know, there are multiple reasons for this. But one of them is that, um, you know, Ukraine has this law to limit or block sort of use of minority languages. And Viktor Orban really sees himself and his government as sort of a champion of minority um, uh, Hungarian populations, sort of human rights outside of Hungary. And so these, this is one area where this kind of um, uh, comes into, into a clash. Um, what I'm really watching when it comes to Orban is the way in which uh, his stance on um, anti-EU sort of pushback against the sort of liberal values that the EU is meant to sort of champion and his stance on 
Ukraine have brought him into some tensions with his other fellow um, uh, unruly children in the EU. So Poland is the one that I'm particularly interested in because sure. Poland is another country that is sort of anti-EU, despite being in the EU, kind of um, has a populist kind of a streak to it, is, uh, has, has argued against the kind of liberal model of the West, and yet Poland is very squarely within the alliance to support oh, Ukraine. Yes, yes. Right. So this kind of daylight <laughs> that has opened up between Hungary and Poland is a really interesting one to yeah. to kind of think about. Um, Turkey is an interesting case. I'm curious about your thoughts on Turkey too, but um, you know, Erdogan is also a populist. Um, and, you know, I think that the predominant reading in Europe is that his opposition to NATO expansion in particular has roots in domestic politics, that he is playing to a domestic audience. He's got an election coming up in 2023, uh, legislative elections, presidential elections. Um, the economy is not in good shape in Turkey. Uh, and so therefore kind of signaling that it has this sort of strong role that other actors take it seriously is something that could play really well. And from all accounts, this um, the stance against NATO expansion in, in the case of Sweden and Finland has played pretty well. Um, I haven't seen that much being discussed about vocal opposition to this stance. So, um, you know, the, the us versus them kind of um, uh, stance that, that this has allowed him to kind of set up has, has worked for him so far. Yeah, and, and uh, I don't know if you had had a chance to listen to the show, but we did have uh, Ambassador Ross Wilson on uh, a couple months ago, and, and he had actually served as U.S. ambassador uh, to Turkey. Uh, so he was quite familiar with Turkey. He knew Erdogan back then when he was uh, when he was the U.S. ambassador, uh, and and he had some great insights into what's driving a lot of the the politics in Turkey. Uh, the phrase was they want to be the uh, the subject of the sentence, not the object of the sentence. <laughs> yeah. So you know, when I think about some of the things that um, that uh, that I've been sort of following when it comes to Turkey's. Um, uh, their, their strategy in this particular instance, right? Um, that, you know, it, it seems about, it seems to be in part about um, the kind of respect that Turkey thinks it is owed, right? right? Um, and <clears throat> so it's not just about Sweden shutting down fundraising opportunities for um, people affiliated with the PKK, the, the, the Kurdish separatists um, and their related organizations, um, not just about um, complying with extradition requests, but also not visibly seen to support them, right, and to to celebrate, you know, people affiliated with them. So there's a sense of, you know, we we deserve more um, obvious respect and standing, right? I think that's a psychological piece of this, too. I, I think that's spot on, frankly. And, and if you look at a lot of the, the language that Erdogan has used about Finland and Sweden being admitted into NATO— uh, I mean, it's tough language, uh, mm -hmm. his accusations towards the governments in, in Sweden and, and Finland, uh, specifically about the Kurds. And I know there's a Kurdish uh, uh, member of parliament in, in Sweden who has his particular ire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I personally think that a lot of this is, uh, is focused on playing to the domestic politics side to show how strong he is. But I, I think there's what he's really angling for is to get Turkey out from under sanctions for having purchased the Russian S-400 surface-to-air missile system. Mm -hmm. uh, they got bounced out of the F-35 program, uh, which is a, a joint pro well, it's a combined program across many, many nations, NATO nations as well, mm -hmm. uh, to, to give them this 
you know, fifth generation fighter aircraft. And uh, Turkey got bounced out of that. He wants back in. I think he wants uh, some of those other sanctions removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see how the negotiations go. I know that the, the Finns and the Swedes uh, have had uh, diplomats in uh, Ankara talking uh, as a good game, <laughs> trying to figure out how to fix this. Yeah, and, uh, and I think diplomacy is something that can yield big dividends that's in this right. particular instance. That's right. So unfortunately, we're starting to run a little low on time. There is one question I want to ask you on an economic side, and then I'm going to give you the floor to tell us what else we should know. But if you look at the situation in Ukraine, Russia's taking a beating from Ukrainian forces. Russia's economy is really taking a hit right now. Uh, I think some of those things, uh, I mean, Russia, there are countries out there like China and others who have not uh, tapped into the sanctions regime. They're really giving Russia an outlet for a lot of their oil and grains and things like that. But the EU recently committed 220 billion euros to end their reliance on Russian oil and natural gas. Uh, as well as coal for power and for heat generation. Uh, Nord Stream 2 is kind of a dead issue for Mm -hmm. Germany. Uh, It's possible that Nord Stream 1, the original pipeline that went from St. Petersburg over to Germany, may also be coming to an end if the EU doesn't successfully enact uh, this this uh, this effort to wean themselves off Russian fossil fuels. I, I know that the EU had a goal of 2030 to be heavily committed to green hydrogen fuel as an energy infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So maybe this whole Russian invasion of Ukraine has really spurred them to, to move a lot faster. How hard is it going to be for the EU uh, and the NATO members, because not, not every country in Europe is a member of the EU or, or a member of NATO, but to weather these economic challenges that we're seeing right now as we try to hold fast on sanctions for Russia? I mean, it's going to be it's going to be hard, right? And um, you know, the the domestic will to to uh, accept the higher cost of things, right? Which and that higher cost is would be happening right now for lots of reasons not connected to. Ukraine at all, right? right? I mean, there is a um, there's a pandemic related sort of spike in inflation, and um, you know, there there's a there's there's money few, chasing fewer goods all oh, over the right. place, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, so and I, and I and I think that for uh, for a lot of of people who are not um, you know front sort of seeing this in, in a sort of firsthand kind of a way. Um, support for Ukraine get, then gets weighed with pocketbook pressures, right? right? And that's that's a classic kind of a problem in political science in general, right? The international foreign policy problem versus the pressures you face at the gas pump, at the grocery store, making rent. And so I think that you know, um, as you get closer to winter and fuel becomes important. I mean, even in the summer, if we have a really hot summer and temperatures spike, and so, you know, it becomes important to um, fuel, you know, cooling and things of the sort. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which um, domestic populations might decide that actually the thing that is most pressing for their well-being and the focus of their politicians should be something uh, a little bit more domestically focused. And that's the risk that that European leaders run right now. Yeah. And even here in the United States, uh, when Russia first invaded Ukraine, there was a I mean, there was a it was hugely popular to to do whatever we could to support Ukraine. And uh, when when the economic uh, waves started to hit us, sure. there's that has actually changed. I think the last poll I saw something like fifty two percent of polled Americans say we should not uh, put our economy on a lesser footing 
uh, just to save Ukraine. Right, because defense of the liberal international order is a really abstract thing it really to is. fight for, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and and for most people, this idea of of you know what does it mean to sacrifice a ru- for a rules based international order is relatively distant, even yeah. if they benefit from it. They don't see how they benefit from right. it. Whereas when you go to the the pump and you pay five dollars a gallon in gas, that's something that's that's a that's a pain that feels real yeah. and immediate yes. and tangible. <laughs> yeah. um, and so you know this is this is the kind of general assumption in in in, in elections is that when the economy is doing well, incumbents do well. When the economy is doing poorly, the incumbents lose. And right now, uh, that holds some. I mean. Biden should be a little bit alarmed by this. I'm sure he is. Um, but you know, a lot of the commitment to um, to holding some of this 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 alliance together against Russia is underpinned by Boris Johnson, who's in political trouble, yeah. by Biden, who is not up for re-election in the next year, um, uh, and has not sort of like is not going to have a vote of no confidence in the way that Boris Johnson does. The British system is different. The American system doesn't allow for that. But he's going to be anxious about that. So when when um, you know Macron just recently got elected, so he's got a little bit more time. But this is a real concern, right? When two of the the leaders who are have been really outspoken about this are themselves facing sort of like e- political precarity, yeah. um, they're going to pay attention to their the signals from the domestic audience in ways that they may not otherwise do if they were a little bit more political secure. Yeah. We unfortunately only have a few minutes left. I was going to put you on the spot and 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 ask you to make a prediction <laughs> how the Ukraine situation plays out. You know, I we, may have I may have run up the clock to <laughs> yeah, avoid that question nicely altogether. Nicely done, nicely done. <laughs> I will give you this opportunity to uh, close out the show with any thoughts you have uh, about anything else linked to uh, events in Europe over the last uh, four months. What haven't we discussed that caught your your eye and and should be addressed on our show? Well, I think one thing just to sort of. Um, uh, tie things up with with sanctions and and Ukraine is that the longer that sanctions are in place, the more sophisticated people and countries become at evading them. Right. And so, um, you know, the the sanctions that have been put on Russia are um, remarkable for how um, how broad they are and, and how Western powers have been committed to them. But at some point, there's a little bit of a, not a little bit, a little, there's a point of diminishing returns there. And right. so I don't know when we're going to reach that. But I think that's something we should be talking about and how, um, you know, the the ways of of, of, of of trying to guard against sort of circumvention of sanctions by using third parties, um, you know, that needs to be a, a big part of this conversation going forward. Yeah, and the Russians are already working absolutely uh, aggressively to figure out ways around the sanctions and other countries too. Yep. And, and one of the big things, and we don't have time to talk about it today, but Africa uh, and the Middle East, repl- they rely very heavily on both Russia and Ukraine for grains. Yes. And uh, they have to eat. Yes. I mean, Egypt, something like 50% of their grain, uh, from their wheat comes from Ukraine alone. Uh, and they eat a lot of bread in, yes, in Egypt, do. and the price for wheat is going through the roof. Right, and when you have that kind of economic uncertainty and destabilization, it does not bode well no. for <laughs> the politics that follow. No, that is right. That is right. Well, unfortunately, we've reached the end of today's show, uh, today's edition of National Security This Week. Dr. Devashri Gupta, thank you so much for joining us again today. It was a great discussion. Pleasure as always, John. Thank you. What do you have planned for the summer? Uh, I am planning a whole slew of research, All right. um, uh, and so I'm looking forward to just getting uh, getting my my hands dirty with that. Okay. <laughs>
And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finished year week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.